The reading this morning comes from Revelation chapter 5. John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I, um, I asked Justin to read uh, the, uh, the entire uh, chapter 5. And uh, having, so he just read it, and I feel like it's just sort of self-explanatory. <laughs> Lambs, horns, seven eyes, what's not to understand there? Um, but I have a few minutes, so let me go ahead and explain it to you. Um, to start off, let me just say this. One of my um, uh, favorite directors, uh, and, and I know he's, he's a bit maligned, and, and some would say he hasn't made a, a quality movie in uh, two decades, but I really enjoy M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, anybody else? Uh, some of you guys are like, who's that guy? Like, yeah? For, for you, for you, thank you. It's, uh, what, what I love, I just think that his storytelling is really, is, is really rich. I love the twists, the turns. I love the supernatural aspects to many of his stories. I think that his characters are really intriguing. And then the plot twists that um, they just always, they get me every time. One of the things that I really like about uh, Shyamalan's uh, heroes is that they are often the one that is unexpected. Um, and one of a movie, few movies that came out a few years ago, Signs, it's, uh, this one is about, <laughs> I feel a little embarrassed now even just telling you that I like these <laughs> movies. I didn't think about this moment until just now. Uh, so it's about aliens. <laughs> oh, man. 
and uh, <laughs> this is, I should, have, I should do more thinking about my illustrations. The, so it's about some aliens that land, and uh, it sort of lands in a field, and there's this um, one uh, minister who has sort of walked away from ministering, and his family is, is there, and how are they going to defeat the aliens, and they're in this sort of small town. And uh, the hero is Merrill, and Merrill is, uh, he's a part of the family, and he's a, sort of a washed-up minor league baseball player who's just sort of like living on the couch, not, not doing anything. And it's Merrill that actually becomes uh, the hero of the story. And he, he's a baseball player, so he just sort of smashes glasses of water that happen to be everywhere, and it gets on the aliens, and it burns them, and that's how they are rescued, which doesn't sound uh, very exciting, but I'm telling you, the fact that Merrill was the hero was just really, it was just quite unexpected. Um, the village, I really like the village. It's, uh, this is one that set uh, it, the setting I'm just going to give away all the spoilers. If you haven't seen any of these, <laughs> sorry. Uh, it, but it's set, it's set in an, an old uh, sort of uh, early 20th century town, and um, the hero of the story, uh, the, the town is surrounded by haunted woods, and that there's creatures that live there, and it sort of keeps the, the town sort of under siege, and it also keeps people from traveling through the woods. But then one of the townspeople um, is, is, is injured, and it takes Ivy. Ivy is blind, and she's this sort of star-crossed lover, and she travails the haunted wood in order to rescue uh, her uh, love. Uh, but she's the unexpected one. Like she, she can't see. She's got to navigate not just the woods, because you know, I can't walk in the woods with my eyes and a compass, and she navigates the thing blind, and there's creatures that want to uh, get her. Um, but, she, but so Ivy becomes the hero. Uh, another one, Lady in the Water. This one, people hated this one. I actually enjoyed this one tremendously. Um, yeah, you like this one? It was good. It, was, it's sort of a, it has sort of a fantasy storybook quality uh, to it, and they're trying to figure out how do they rescue the lady uh, in the water, and they have to sort of uh, decipher uh, ancient stories in order to do it, but it's like uh, the people that have to decipher are all of the people that live in this raggedy apartment complex. I lived in a raggedy apartment complex, so thinking about my neighbors deciphering some ancient piece of literature, I was there, and I was like, this is not going to happen. She's not getting back in the water. The little grass creature's going to get her. But um, it actually, the hero of that story is Reggie. And Reggie is like this witless, like, jock of a character who displays great courage uh, in the face of things that he just doesn't understand. And you go through the story, and you're like, there's no way Reggie. I don't even know why he's in the story. But he's the hero at the end of it. And, and in so many ways, it's one of the things that really attracts me, not just to the storytelling quality of these movies, but also just this unexpected turn that the hero isn't who you think it's going to be. And in many ways, when we come to Revelation 4 and 5, that that's what's happening. That the hero isn't, isn't displayed in the way that you expect it to, to happen. Um, I just want to, um, this morning, just walk us through Revelation 4 and 5 and just sort of explain some of the things that are happening um, and then to explain why that was good news uh, to the church, to the churches that um, are being written to and also spend just a quick minute about what this might mean for us. So, uh, we're just going to jump in. Revelation 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and there before me uh, was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had heard, I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Um, what's, uh, the, the verse in beginning, after this I looked, it's the after this is the after I um, wrote all of the letters to the seven churches that we talked about last week. 
And so in terms of the first setting of Revelation, it is, it is here on earth. It is uh, John the Revelator writing to the churches that are, that are on earth. And now at this point, beginning in chapter 4 and moving forward, the scene changes. And it's no longer about earth, but it's actually what he's seeing in heaven. And there's a window that is opened up and he's able to see this. Now, uh, just a quick note about this. Uh, what we're going to see in, uh, is not a sort of a detailing of the... Um, the geography or the environment of heaven, although that is on display, that's not chiefly what's trying to be detailed, but rather it's, uh, what's, what's being articulated is the character and the description of God and his qualities. So um, if we're reading Revelation, we're like, okay, now where exactly in the room were the lampstands? Then we're going to miss the character qualities and attributes of what's actually being communicated and why it's being communicated and how that becomes good news to those who are reading Revelation. I just want to go back and just remember that the aim of the book of Revelation is one of hope. And so whenever we encounter, even as we walk through chapters 4 and 5, the question for you is how is this hope, how is this good news to those who are reading it? How is this going to stir up one's assurance that Christ is on the throne as they're walking through this? What's seen there in uh, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had, appeared, had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like uh, an emerald and circled the throne. What we begin to see as we walk through uh, chapter 4 is sort of the, is the display and the decor of what John is seeing. And at the center of it is a throne, and we'll get to some of this in just a bit. And there's one that's seated, seated on that throne. And then we begin to hear, like, well, here's what this sort of looks like. And we begin to get descriptions of, of jasper and rubies and a sea that is like glass. And we get other things that are happening around the throne later on in chapter 4. There become peals of thunder and lightning. And there's a rainbow. All of this becomes imagery for those that would have first heard Revelation. They would have known what this was in reference to. If I begin telling you a story and I say uh, I saw a, a, a great um, seat and there was a cherry tree and one who had an axe on the cherry tree, what am I referencing? Exactly. So I didn't say, and there's a story of George Washington and he had this thing that was a cherry tree that may or may not have been true. I, I just say it and you know what it is. It's that same um, psyche that John is speaking to. And so when it says peals of thunder, and lightning, that is going to, that is going to um, trigger for those first hearers of God delivering the law on Mount Sinai. It's going to take them back to another place. And he's saying that memory that you have of what took place in the past, that's happening right here in this throne that I'm seeing. And the rainbow, do you remember when God rescued you in the rain and there was an ark? They're going to remember God's promise that he wouldn't destroy the world in this way. And so he's conjuring these Old Testament images and saying, this is the revelation. This is what I'm seeing. And it's not happening on earth, but it's happening here to display the power and majesty of the one who is seated on the throne. And so this is all of the imagery that's coming up and that's being displayed there. Revelation 4, verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. I was looking at, I was trying to put together the slides. I thought, oh, let me see if there's like paintings uh, for this. And so I Googled like, 20, like mini thrones is what I Googled. I don't know, that's probably part of my problem. I Googled the wrong thing. 
And it was like all of these images that looked like Grateful Dead album covers that were just, I was like, I'm not, I can't, I'm not, I'm not doing that. So you just have to go with me. So there's the throne and around it are the 24 elders. And, and what, the, what, the, what the numbers and the numerology is trying to get at is, um, and there's a, there's a few different, there's uh, disagreement among some of the commentaries about exactly what this means, but what's at the center of it is the fullness of, um, of those that are a part of the people of God that are represented there. And some, they would say it's the, it's the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, meaning that those that have been brought in both from the old and the new covenant, that those are gathered there. But they're not, they're, they're not big thrones. They're not the ones to which we're worshiping, but that they're other ones, those that will carry the good news and greatness of God throughout the world. There's these uh, four creatures that also show up in verse 7. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Uh, this is, Googling that will just take you down some amazing rabbit holes. But let me just try and take a run at it. These four living creatures actually um, represent all of creation. That there's a Jewish tradition that says each of these images that are represented, they are a typology of uh, all of creation. So the lion is viewed as the greatest of wild animals. The ox was viewed as the greatest of all domestic animals. The eagle is the greatest of the birds. And humans were the greatest and the chief uh, pinnacle of all of creation. And so to have all of those gathered around there, along with the 24 elders, what is being displayed is that all of creation, that every aspect of what God has created and ordered is gathered around the one that is seated on the throne. And the 24 elders, they have crowns on their head. And then later what they'll do is they'll take these crowns, they'll go to the one that's seated on the throne, and they'll take those crowns off, and then they'll lay it down at the feet. They will be giving honor to the one on the throne. They will announce to the one on the throne, Worthy is our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power, as it says in verse 11 of chapter 4. There's actually a, a, a political message that's going on here that those that are the first hearers of uh, this letter will have understood. The political messaging is this, that's whenever there were lesser kings in the empire, whenever they would come to the emperor, what they would do is they would go to the emperor, they would go to Nero or whoever was the emperor, and they would take their crown and they would lay it at the feet of the emperor to say, You're, you, you are actually my lord. Ancient historians, such as Roman historian Suetonius, would write that the emperors demanded to be called Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. And so then the hymns around the throne of God are, You are worthy, our Lord, our God. What is happening in Revelation is a political message that is saying whoever the emperor is and whoever are the other vassals of that emperor and whatever other creatures are bowing before the empire of Rome, you need to know that behind that, that there's another throne, that there's another emperor, and there are other vassals that are even bigger than this one. And so whatever is happening here, it's small time. It's not going to last. It's not forever. That there's another one that's on the backdrop, and that's the one that's in control. That's the one that is governing the movements of history and is taking history in a redemptive purpose. And so it's around that place that all, of creature, that all creatures and all of creation is saying, worthy is the one who is on the throne. That he's the one who is worthy. 
John is noting that whatever else is going on in earthly courts, that they're nothing compared to what's going on in the heavenly one. The late uh, missiologist Harvey Kahn would put it this way, to the little churches of Asia Minor, this ceaseless worship, the scene, uh, the ceaseless worship illuminates the scene that is just behind the scenes of all of history that we're experiencing. No matter what appears to be the case on earth, God the Creator exists and knows all. The point of the universe is not power but worship. Do not bow down before idols or earthly powers, but like heaven's awesome creatures, worship God and Him alone. And we move to chapter 5, verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scrolls or even look inside of it. And I wept, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. The, the scrolls and breaking of the seals, there's... Um, it can be helpful to think, to sort of imagine what it looks like. And again, there's some disagreement as to what type of scroll it was. One um, theologian that I uh, read, um, Justo Gonzalez, that we, we use and, and quote a lot, he said that, um, that actually the, the type of scroll that this one, that this would have been, would have been more like a fan book to where the pages were stuck together using a sealed wax. The reason... F- is because this would have been the way that wills, that last wills and testaments would have been um, put together. Because what it did was you're able to break one piece of the page. So if you think of a book where the pages are stuck together, they, they could break one piece of the book and just read that page, with, but leaving the other pieces still confidential. And this was the way that actually, uh, within Roman law, that, it was, uh, that wills were executed uh, for someone's uh, desires upon their death, or even while they're still living, to say, this is what I want to happen with, uh, with my resources. And so it's in this place that when we come to Revelation 5, they're saying there's a book and it's, and it's, and it's sealed. But the thing is, even, even within Roman law, you had to have the right authority. You had to have one who had the authority to actually break those seals and read the will and say, this is, this is what uh, the one wants. So the, the purpose of the scrolls, the scroll um, with its uh, pages uh, pressed together, um, meant that the reader uh, would understand that this book is actually just for the one who wrote it and that we're to hear the things that they had uh, intended for us. And so for, the, for those that are first hearing this, what that, what, the way that they would have heard that there was a, a scroll with seals that needed to be broken, they would have understood that to be, this is what happens when someone is telling what their will and testament is. And so because this is God's book, then that means that this is God's will. These are his desires, his purposes for the world. The thing is, it's not just the content of the will that's important. It's not just sort of what it says, but actually how you open it and who opens it. This is why um, what's required is someone that's worthy to open the book. What's required is someone with authority to open the scroll, to read and to inaugurate God's will and testament here. Someone who can initiate that which God wants and wishes to take place. The breaking of the seals in heaven, that it's going to actually set in motion uh, the work of God on earth. And so it's not just what's said, but who does it. 
This is why actually John, in, in, in Revelation 5, this is why John is weeping. Because he sees that the book is sealed, that God's will, that his purposes, that his, his work in the world, that, that, that it can't be broken open, that would inaugurate the work so that we're stuck without redemption. And this is why he's weeping. Because he's looking, we, we don't know, we're stuck here. He realizes that unless it's opened, then God's plan's not going to move forward. And there's angst there. Um, yesterday, Lisa and I were in Philadelphia over the week, and our kids were staying with um, Lisa's uh, sister and, and brother-in-law just outside of Philadelphia. So we went there, we were hanging out uh, after, the, after our time in Philadelphia. We were picking up the kids, and we're ready to go uh, back home to come back to D.C. And, um, you know, we'd, we'd hung out. It was good. And then I was like, all right, time to go. You know, I don't know. Anybody, like, you just like, that's right, good. I'm ready to get home now. You know, I've been gone for a few days. And, um, so, we're and so finally I come in. I'm like, all right, mama, let's go. That's what I said. I said, let's go. <laughs> she said, all right, honey. So I'm gathering stuff up, putting it in the car. Nobody's moving. I'm like, all right, kids, time to go. So they're like, all right, daddy. And then they like get on bikes and like disappear to the neighborhood. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, we're never going to get to D.C. Like, I'm still stuck in this Philadelphia suburb. And it's like, I was just, I was anxious. I'm like, what am I going to do? I could get in the car, like just turn it on. Maybe just sit there, like do a honk in the driveway and be that jerk. You know, like I just didn't know. And I was like, ah, oh, because I knew that nothing was going to move forward until mama moved us forward. And John, he's, he's in that space. He's like, this isn't going to. I mean, the Lord has things that he wants to happen. He has redemption in mind, but it can't move forward unless we find the one who can break the seals and move this forward. And so he's weeping bitterly because he thinks we're just stuck in brokenness. We're just stuck in the way that things are. We're just stuck being ruled by this emperor. We're just, we're just here. I suspect you found yourself in that place at some point. That, that place of bitterness and just thinking, we're not moving forward unless the Lord intervenes in some way. And, and your heart longs for someone to break the seal and to show you this is the way forward. This is what redemption looks like up ahead. Verse 5. And then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. That's the gospel. Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scrolls and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. The elder said, ah, you don't have to weep. The lion, he's going to open the, he's going to open the scrolls. He's going to begin uh, the 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 gears of God's redemptive purposes in the world. Look, the lion is there. The lion of Judah. The lion represented in the Jewish tradition. It represented the strength and power of God. So he goes, the elder goes down and just sort of comforting John says, "Don't weep. The strength." 
and power of God is going to break open the seals and then move forward His redemptive purposes in the world for you and for all of creation, all of the creation that's gathered around the throne, the lamb, the the, the lion, the power and strength and majesty of God is going to break open the seals. John wipes his eyes, says, that's great, that's what we need because Rome is big and strong and powerful and my sin is ever before me. So I need a strong and powerful and mighty God to break open the seals so we can move forward into the redemption purposes of God and then John after wiping his eyes he looks and he sees not the lion but he sees the lamb the lamb that represents the wisdom of God historically in the Jewish tradition the one that was slain that would have for those with Jewish memory remembered that when we sacrificed the lamb so that the angel of death would pass over us and our first uh, redemptive story and our first salvific moment in Egypt, the lamb that was slain, the wisdom of God that takes not the strength and might and, and displays it in the ways of the world, but actually takes the strength and might and displays it in the wisdom of God that is the lamb. And he's there. This lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, which is weird. (laughs) Let me just state the obvious. Again, this is these are images and illustrations that can be lost on us in the 21st century, but would not have been lost upon the first hearers. So it's important for us to excavate. What did this mean to the first hearers? Horns um, represented power, and eyes represented wisdom. And so that same dynamic of the lion and the lamb, but the lamb still has power and he still has wisdom, even as he's being sacrificed for the sins and the brokenness of the world. And the fact that there's seven of them, in numerology, seven means perfection. And so embodied in the lamb that was slain, is perfect strength and perfect power and perfect wisdom together to break open the scrolls so that God's work in the world can move forward. And that's what's displayed. And so the moment that the Lamb takes the scrolls, John's tears cease. And the next sound that you hear is the song of redemption in Revelation 5 with your blood With the blood of the Lamb, you have purchased for God people from every tribe, it says in chapter 5, and every language, and people of every nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests. John's tears, they, they cease when he sees the Lamb. And the very next thing that's heard is, listen, whatever else is going on in the world, here's what I want you to know, that I sit on the throne, that the Lamb is seated on the throne, and that what you hear in response is, listen, you, whatever is going on in your life, what I want you to know is that because of the Lamb, that you're priests and that you're a kingdom, that you are are a people, that you're not left on your own, God has brought you near that your weeping can turn to a song because Christ is ready to take your tears and turn them into a chorus. He's ready to take your life and turn it into a kingdom of his dwelling and he's ready to take your living and turn it into a priesthood of his love. 
That's what's being displayed in Revelation 4 and 5. Dominican scholar Wilfred Harrington, he says, In his vision, John looked for the emergence of a lion, and he saw a slaughtered lamb. And what he learned, and what he tells his readers, is that the lion is the lamb. The ultimate power of God, the lion, is manifested in the cross of the lamb. This is why the lamb is John's definitive name for Christ. So what does this mean for us? It means that Christ Jesus, that he's the lion, that he's the power of God, that he's the strength of God, that he's the one that can open the scrolls and he's the one that is moving all of us towards God's beautiful, redemptive and renewing purposes in the world and in our world and in our life. It also means that Christ Jesus is the lamb. He's the wisdom of God that we can't separate God's means with God's end. He doesn't bring about his redemptive purposes through just power as the world measures it. But he brings it about through his wisdom as well. It also means that Christ is on the throne. He's on the ultimate throne. Methodist theologian Ben Witherington would write, the rhetorical problem that Revelation is answering is this question. To whom does the earth belong? And who is the ruler of this world? And the central image in Revelation is that of a throne. Signifying, as thrones did in the day, either divine and liberating love or demonic and death-dealing power. And John decisively says that who controls the world And who has power over the earth is the one that sits on the throne. And the one who is on the throne is the lion that is a lamb. And that for us is good news because it means that Christ is on the throne and he is in control. And that our weeping in whatever ways you've wept this week or this season In whatever ways it looks like powers and principalities of this world are controlling things, it is good for us to remember that behind the curtain that there is one that is in more control and that has opened the scrolls and that is moving us towards a day in which all things are set right and that that lamb sits on the throne. And our weeping can turn to songs of redemption because worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy is the one who is resurrected. And worthy is the one who holds in his hands power and glory and authority. And in that, we can all say, thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord, there, there are days where, um, where we need to be reminded that you're a lion. Days where we need to be reminded that you, that you are in control, that you uh, have power, that you have majesty, that you have strength. 
and that the ways that we see the enemy at work in our own lives, and the ways that we see the enemy at work in our world, God, that, that that's not the last word and that's not the final say. And we need to be reminded, Lord, we need, to have, we need to have elders that will come to us and say, don't weep, look, the lion is there. And there are other days, Lord, where we need to be reminded that you're the lamb, that you have complete wisdom, that you have complete understanding, and that you're the one that, was, that is worthy to move our lives and to move our world forward. That you're the one that can help us get unstuck from the broken patterns of living that we have bound ourselves in. Lamb of God, we need that wisdom. We need to be reminded that we've been freed and can walk in that freedom. So God, in whatever ways, Holy Spirit, that you can come and remind us of your power and your wisdom, your strength and your mercy, your, your, your tenderness and your love, God, I pray by your spirit that you would come and that you would, that you would arrest us in that. And that we, like the churches in Asia, could find solace in a land that's on the throne. So God, as we, as we sit in this word and this good news from Revelation 4 and 5, God, I pray that you would stir in us. And show us how to steward this good news. In Christ's name, amen.